Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Today, I am joined by Matt Hill. Matt is a recent seminary graduate with a master's degree from Houston Baptist University. He is working for Ratio Christi, an apologetics organization, and he serves in the Air Force. So, Matt, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I wanted to have you on because we went to a breakfast together, and it was fun to talk with you. And I learned some about you and thought maybe some people at our church would be interested in it. And there are some topics that would be of interest to talk about with you. Yeah. But first, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us about your family, and um, maybe a little bit about what you do on the regular for your job. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've been married for, this is our 15th year, and we have five kids, uh, my wife Charlotte and I, and our oldest is 12, and then we have a a one-year-old. So we're uh, in the throes of very active uh, time in life right now, which is exciting. Um, and it's, it's the middle of soccer season at, at the Hill House, so very, very fast-paced right now. So how many games a week are you watching? At least one, but sometimes two. Okay. Um, so this is, and this is new for us with the shipment. So my oldest daughter's on the junior varsity team um, for, the, for the, this homeschool collective soccer team. So, yeah, it's been fun. Um, so, so five kids. Um, we've lived in the cities for almost all of our time being married together. Um, I used to work for Target corporate and they relocated us to Texas. So that's my one break in being a Minnesotan. Uh, and we were only down there for a year. I work for the air force, um, which has been a big part of my life. Um, so I, I was in the military for 20 years and, but I've also been, a a civilian employee of the Air Force. So I retired from active service in 2020. So now I go to work and I don't wear a uniform anymore, much to the chagrin of my seven-year-old son. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, it's, it's awesome. I, I really enjoy my work. So I oversee the facilities there. So I just make sure that the, the buildings are running well, that it's comfortable, things look nice, the, the grounds are kept up and um so I, I I've been doing that for seven years. Um I hope to do it for as long as they'll keep me and um it's been a great way also uh it, it my, I have a, a great employer and uh seminary was probably only possible uh with this job. Yeah. Uh, so it it's been it's been a good fit for us. It's always nice when God provides a job that yeah. allows you to work on other things or include other pursuits in your life. Yeah. Um, but you did, probably didn't see yourself being a seminary student for most of your life. No. So maybe you can tell us just a little bit about how you came to become a seminary student yeah. and what God has done in your life to bring you there. Yeah. So... I was not, I grew up in a, in a home where I was exposed to the church. Um, my mom was always, 
she was faithful about making sure that we were in church and, and she served. My dad wasn't a Christian, but he probably would have always made sure that we were at church, you know, at least some percentage of the time, because I think for him, he sees it as um, moral formation to go to church. Um, but I did not become a Christian until I was 31. So, um, so I, I struggled with all the things a 20-year-old in the military would struggle yep. with. Um, and eventually, the, just the, the collective weight of my sin uh, overcame me. My wife found pornography on my phone. And um, it, at that point, became obvious that or I, uh, my addiction to pornography was exposed. And this is in 2011. Mm-hmm. And um, the, by God's grace, then, I, so we were going to a church and I was going along to, to so that my wife, to basically to support my wife. Mm-hmm. I sat us as far back in the church as you can. And uh, I don't think I sang any songs or any whatever. It was like an hour I had to get through every Sunday. And, um, but when crisis hit, that was like, okay, well, we'll go to church and maybe that'll get her off my back kind of thing. Um, and this is the mind frame I was in at the time. But the Holy Spirit... Um, was was very present in that meeting, and the pastor walked me through what sin was, and then very graciously shared the gospel with me, um, really for the first time in my life, and it was so clear, like this is the way, and and um, and so God met me right there in that place, and and He took away any temptation for pornography in that moment, and sometimes I struggle to tell people that, or I, do, or I I'm cautious about telling people that because. I know men that have really not had that experience and have had to work very hard to overcome that sin. I didn't have to by no work of my own. So, um, so we went to that church for 10 years and while we were there, um, I got involved in a men's ministry and it grew really out of control. And so we were meeting me and this other guy were overseeing it and it was like 80 to at least 80 at every session and sometimes north of 150 and there was no pastoral oversight at all and so so you're basically pastor guy yeah yeah and so it started to make me really nervous and uh there was a guy uh who's now become a really good friend he came on staff and he um, quickly saw what was going on and, and um, stepped in and, and started discipling us. And um, I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Um, and so anyway, at some point, I, I t- said to my wife in 2020, I said, um, hey, you know, I should probably get some like training or something if I'm going to keep doing men's ministry or whatever. She said, you should go to seminary. And I had I was just like really close to completing a master's degree in a different discipline and and I was pretty much done with school and um I said oh I don't think so. She said well you got to pray about it. So I said all right. And I I prayed God if you want me to go to seminary you'll have to pay for it. And that was it. <clears throat> and then I out processed from the military about 2 months later and on my last day in the military in uniform 
Um, they let me know that my education benefits have been extended for three years after my retirement. And now, uh, and it it was very clear in that moment that, oh, I I guess I got to go to seminary. So, (laughs) so that's how I ended up in seminary. And, um, but it was a a wonderful experience. Uh, Houston Baptist, uh, is, is known for their apologetics program. It's now Houston Christian. Um, but it, yeah, my professors were great and loved my classmates and yeah, it was, it was awesome. Great. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing your, I guess, journey to faith through a lot of difficulty. And I think uh, that's uncommon in one way, but I think it's probably more common than some of us who grew up in the church recognize that God actually allows people to experience the weight of sin more fully um, than maybe they would ever want, and even maybe not process it right initially, but God uses those situations to bring about his grace and kindness and forgiveness. And I know that Um, There are people who are in our church now and who are pursuing the Lord only because they encountered the fruit of sin after decades in their life, and and God has used that. So it's always encouraging to hear, and um, the outcome isn't always the same. Um, God doesn't always get rid of the issues that brought awareness of your need for him. Mm. Um, He doesn't always do that, but it's his kindness to bring us to him either way. And so thank you for sharing. And it's great to hear that God has used you and pursued um, ministry through you to to men at that church and now through your own studies. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the emphasis of your study and um, what you wrote about and maybe you could even fill us in on what this mysterious other master's program was that you were in. <laughs> well, the other master's program I was in was uh, like an organizational development. Uh, so it was an, I think it was an MA in, okay. in some organizational development. It, they, it's now called something different at the school I was at. So I'm sure I'd have to take so many classes over again if I did it again. But um. And I have no interest in going back and pursuing that. Now. You're done with school yeah, for yeah, real. Yeah, for real, for, for at least for a while. And, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, so I, I, when we started looking at seminaries, my initial instinct was, well, I need to learn how to read the Bible better. So I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll pursue a theology degree of some sort. And, but for whatever reason, apologetics kept coming up and it was probably, and it was kind of a cool experience. I, I interviewed, I don't know, at least a dozen schools. And um, because there was no like no rush to get going, but I was motivated. And so I talked to tons of schools all over the country. And eventually I was just like, I think I should do apologetics. That would be so much fun. And it seems like, you know, the Lord's kind of bringing this back up and through different circumstances. Now, can can you define what apologetics is. Yeah. So apologetics is a discipline. Um, and it kind of, I don't know, it's not really in philosophy per se, but it, it, it kind of spans across theology, philosophy, history. And it's uh, apologists defend the, the Christian faith, the objective truth of the Christian faith. So it's sort of grounded in, in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, 
where he commands all Christians to always be prepared to give a defense for your faith. And the word defense is the Greek word apologia. And so that's the root word of, of apologetics. And so essentially what I did is I went to school for three years and learned all the objections, not all, but most of the fundamental objections to Christianity or more broadly theism um, and just learned what the answers to those were. And some of them are self-evident and some of them take a lot of hard thought and research. And um, so now what I do um, ministry-wise is, is, so backing up one step. So while I'm going to seminary, it seemed like my wife and I, we had previously been praying for the Lord to send us cross-culturally. And we never got a burden to go anywhere. It was kind of weird. And then eventually, because we were like praying, the Lord sent us to the 1040 window and just nothing, you know. So I don't know how many people pray to go to the 1040 window and God's like, no. Yeah. Um, but that, that was our experience. And pretty soon we felt like um, youth or young people in general was, was what, you know, maybe what we should work with and, or who should we, we should work with. And so f- with young people, um, they're just inundated right now. They're swimming in a sea of, I, I don't know who coined this term, but liquid modernity. And mm-hmm. it's just truth is relative. Um, and so we wanted to, or I wanted to do something that would help them ground the Christian faith in reality, it, that there was answers for all of these challenges that they were receiving in public school and college, whatever, however we landed. And eventually we came across a, an organization called Ratio Christi, which is a, a pretty big um, college ministry. So it's, it's sort of on the level of crew or university, but the discipleship and evangelism is done through apologetics. So um, they, they have gatherings on the college campuses where they're um, essentially inviting anybody that wants to come, but it's mostly Christians. Um, and they're discussing, you know, who created, what evidence do we have that there is a creator for the universe? And they work through the philosophical and scientific evidence or the evidence for the resurrection, historical evidence for the resurrection, that kind of thing. And they talk about all kinds of topics. But we were burdened for high school kids, and Ratio Christi has a high school ministry, and so that's where we ended up in. So we've, we've just started the, the Ratio Christi College Prep, where we're getting kids ready for college or just adulthood to enter life outside their parents' home with their faith intact, ready to answer questions, to thrive. Um, in a, in a very secular society. Yeah. Okay. So I, I have a couple of follow-up questions on that. Yeah. Um, I don't know what you think about the way that apologetics is sometimes done where it comes across almost as like gotcha moments or so cutesy, or if you just get the right formula, then you can have 100% certain knowledge about whatever the attack from the dumb atheist is on God's not dead. You know, I mean, I feel like for a lot of people I know, when they hear apologetics Mm. or apologetics ministry, that's what they're envisioning. Yeah. And uh, we haven't talked about this enough for me to know what your 
basic approaches to apologetics. But would would you look at those kind of things and say, that's what we're going for? Or no, we're not trying to just have like a quick trap that the dumb atheist, but mm-hmm. yeah, maybe talk a little bit about the demeanor and the approach and the ultimate aim of apologetics as yeah. you're pursuing it. Yeah. Yeah. So first I'll go back to first Peter 315. So everybody quotes the part of the scripture that I did always be prepared to give a defense for the faith. Well, there's a caveat at the end of it. You have to do it with gentleness and, and humility. So that's a part of the command. So you can't, so I'm with you. I see the YouTube videos where it's all got you and, and, um, scoring points and, um, popular apologetics is it's, it's, it's interesting because you can build a pretty substantial ministry online without ever talking to real people. Yeah. You could put a video title. Atheists are going to hate this video. Totally. And get a bunch of clicks. Yeah. 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 And as long as your thumbnail's cool and your titles, you know, hitting the SEO stats, you're gonna you're gonna kill it. Mm-hmm. But there's real people involved, and um, so I, my approach is is always that that the person I'm talking to, I, whatever argument I'm making, I it better be for their good. Um, if they're not a believer, and it should be done with with intellectual hospitality. So they have things that they believe and, and I want to understand what those are on their terms and not spit it, some character of it back to them because that's not going to help them. And they're not going to listen to what I have to say if I do that. And ultimately I want to make Christ known to them. Um, and, and also, you know, when you go through the gospels, very rarely does Jesus talk to anybody with a sharp tongue and it and the only times he does is to the religious elite so he's not approaching gentiles with anything but open arms and and grace and so that's that's how as far as methodologies go i'll use all the different kinds of apologetics that i need to sure in in a certain interaction but the style that i do it in needs to be done with a warmth and an intellectual hospitality that invites them into the conversation. Sure. So it'd be fair to say that you would, you would want the high school students that you're working with to be like Jesus to the doubts of Thomas that says, come and see. Yeah. Not gotcha. Correct. Um, how, how, I know you're early on in working mm-hmm. with high school stu- students in particular, but I think, um, whether it's a high school student or someone like me, when we're thinking about defending the faith, how how do you cultivate a defense of the faith that's not defensive yeah. um, or just inculcating in people that someone's out to get you, so always be ready to defend yourself against <laughs> them. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? And yeah. I, I think this relates a little bit to the caricature of apologetics yeah. that's probably sometimes true, uh, but how, how have you gone about for yourself maybe to avoid feeling like everyone's out to get you yeah. because you're dealing with arguments where people actually are very much against Christianity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 
it's interesting. So, you know, I think in the mid 2000s or the, you know, the aughts and the early part of last decade, there's some hesitance for Christians to share their faith um, because, you know, what if, what if like the person I'm talking to, I don't know how to defend the Da Vinci Code, the claims of the Da Vinci Code, or I, you know, Richard Dawkins, if they ask me any of those Richard Dawkins questions, I don't know what I'm going to say. I, those aren't, in, those are not difficult questions to get around, but, um, or to answer, because they're mainly just rhetoric. There's not a lot of substance behind them. Now what I see when, I, when I'm interacting with skeptics is they really want to know, is Christianity good? And that's a different kind of conversation. So um, usually we're still at a stage in American culture where most people have had exposure to Christianity in some way. And so if they're coming to the table with the idea that Christianity is not good, I want to find out what their background was with it mm-hmm. before I make any kind of assumptions about what they might thinking might might be thinking or how I might approach them as a in with an evangelistic pitch of some sort. So um, there's this guy uh, out of Wheaton. I don't know if he's still there or not, but his name is Jerry Root. He's a C.S. Lewis scholar, and he talks about private knowledge and public knowledge. Yeah. Have you heard this before? Uh, well, I mean, that distinction is a really popular one. Yeah. Private knowledge, public knowledge, correlated then with private truths and public truths. So, so yes, exactly. So, he, so when he's approaching somebody new, this is where I learned it. So when he's approaching somebody new, and, you know, I might ask you, you know, what, what's your name? And you, say, and you tell me your name and uh, where are you from? Well, have you always lived here? And then you may or may not have, but if you were to, and that's all public information, you just, you know, it's just whatever. It's where you're from, it's your name, that kind of thing. But you might slip in that, oh, we moved here after we, my dad, my parents got divorced. Well, that's something private. And now I'm interested in finding more out about that particular thing because, you know, we're not, teenagers so that happened a while ago and that you offered it up means something Mm -hmm. you know maybe there's something back there so but and all that to say i just i need background information about the person before i'm going to enter into any kind of argument because most people are just like trying to work their way through life they're not out to get you they're not out to like prove christianity's wrong and most of the arguments that i come across are basically twitter tropes Mm -hmm. you know and so those are easy to, to, well, where did you learn that? You know, and how did you come to, to, to think that? And most people haven't thought about that second question. So once you ask it, then it disarms mm-hmm. the objection. Yeah, so maybe there are people who have been in what might at least be identified as a Christian context yeah. and maybe experienced something quite negative yeah. in some of their resistance to it, or maybe even direct animus against it, would be really tied to something personal, part yeah. of that public knowledge that, or private knowledge that you'll only know through engaging with them as a person, not as an argument. 
Yeah. In fact, I'll tell you, the one time I did it wrong, um, it, it wasn't with a, a former Christian, it was with a former Muslim. And um, his name was Rashad, or is, is Rashad, and he had kind of walked away from the Muslim faith because he just didn't feel like it corresponded with reality. And so he's, he started coming to this adult men's ministry that we were doing. And so I, I started spending a little bit of time with them. And I, I'm like, well, I'm going to make a, an apologetics pitch, you know, because he was kind of agnostic at that point. He's like, does, does God really exist or not? So I threw a creation argument at him. And he's like, I don't care if God created the universe. Why would he care about me? Hmm. So immediately, you know, it clicks like that's not his problem. His problem's not one of evidence or philosophy. It's personal. Like he's wondering where God is in his life. He's seeking yeah. and he doesn't know him. So that thankfully Rashad had grace for me and I was able to have further conversations, but I, that stuck with me now because it's like, I don't want to push people away before I find out where, what their hangup is. A moment ago, you mentioned that uh, the question that non-believers might be asking is, is Christianity good? Yeah. And it seems to me that there's been a shift, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. and a, a Christianity Today article that you and I read maybe tracks this a little bit, where previously the question might have been, is Christianity true? Yeah. And the response to that required a lot of philosophical and theological and just plain logical argumentation to engage in those discussions. But you just mentioned the question is, is Christianity good? Yeah. So is there a shift in the kind of apologetics that's needed to answer that question? And what are the primary realms uh, or disciplines that we need to tie into? Mm. And then maybe more personally, how can we be involved in answering the question or demonstrating the answer to the question? Yeah. So uh, the kind of apologetics I went to school and learned, I could have done, there's two tracks at my university, which is cultural and philosophical. I learned philosophical apologetics. So I went and I studied philosophy and history primarily and theology. On the cultural side, you'll learn some of those things, but really you're learning how to engage culture and in in a winsome manner with the truths of christianity so so i've I, and so now to say that so i've studied the, the all the philosophical track i completed my degree and that there were times when i was like i should have studied cultural apologetics i think that would have been more helpful i actually probably probably would have been a horse apiece. But now what needs, where we want to ground all of our apologetics, I think at this point with in, in regards to this question, is Christianity good? Is the cultural mandate? Because what everybody's, especially or, young people. Or real quick, for people who aren't familiar with yeah. that term, what what is the cultural mandate? Yeah, yeah. so it comes from Genesis 1, 27, I think. Um, and it, it's God's command to go forth, be fruitful, multiply, and sub- subdue the earth. And so if you look at how 
maybe God's intention for humans to walk that out is we should be, we should, everything that we do ought to be done through that manner that we're subduing the earth. We're in, in, in regards to a, in a post fall world, we're working with him to renew. And so that means art, music, agriculture, whatever your job is, that when you go, you're doing something in that that makes that that brings about renewal, even if it's in the most minute, small way. So I think starting at that point um, is critical for apologetics, and it's really not new. So the why I say start there is that everybody, most young people at this point, are concerned about identity and purpose those are their two questions and so the cultural mandate working from there first of all it allows us to get to the same question and then bring about the gospel and most most people you could not articulate what sin is at this point so you have to start one step back from that that you're a creation and you have a divine purpose so I think that's good news for people. And so we can bring apologetics and evangelism through that lens. I think that's critical. It, connect them to what their desire and what their purpose is. We all have one. Lewis would, C.S. Lewis's writings, those two threads are in virtually every book he wrote, is the, the innate desire to be known and to be loved that's never quite fulfilled here in this physical earth and then the what he called the pilgrim longing which is this longing for purpose or to go home and and that that kind of drives everybody's decisions or at least that's kind of what lewis where lewis was poking at and so i i think apologetically ground or apologetics grounded in those two arguments is best now you can bring in all the philosophy into that um but but it's those two things that are speaking, I think, most to the heart of like where our culture is at right now. Who am I? Why am I here? Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is a subset of discipleship, yeah. particularly as you're working with high school students mm-hmm. to help them understand their identity, to help them process meaning and purpose, and to experience belonging in a Christian community along the way. Yeah, that's a, that's 100% it. Ratio Christi as a corporate entity will will say, I, I think if you go to our um, webpage in the about section, it'll just say that we do discipleship through apologetics. And that's that's how I see it. I think I think that's the best way for not corporately as the church like there's one way to do it, but that's how I, it seems to like get me spun up and get excited about discipleship is is through apologetics so yeah okay so let me throw at you the way that i look at apologetics ish um i i look at it primarily as helping people see that christianity is good Mm -hmm. true and beautiful and for our classical school teachers here at Resurrection, yeah. they, they hear about the good, the true, and the beautiful all the time. And yeah. ultimately, um, God is the 
ultimate good, true, and beautiful. And yeah. Jesus makes that claim, right? I am yes. the truth. Yep. And so to think of showing people Christianity as good, as in it's brought positive things about in our world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are even atheists and agnostics who are yeah. popularly writing, saying that's exactly what's happened, is Christianity has been good for humanity. Um, and then it's true, so dealing with some of the objections, some better than others, some rooted in sinful doubt, some rooted in just ignorant doubt, some rooted in vindictive doubt, um, but then that it's also beautiful, um, that yeah. it is more beautiful than the alternative ways of being that are out there. Um, how does that hit you? Is uh, Yeah. Yeah. Does that work? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And I think I would add one more category, and it's the it's the most livable. Hmm. So it it being so I agree with all those things, and the the yeah the atheists now coming around to saying um, you, you know we can't get rid of religion or maybe even more specifically in some cases like Tom Holland who who wrote the book Dominion found that when he went back and examined the Roman Empire, he, he could not find how his values and morals fit into that world. And it wasn't until Jesus came along that hum- things like humility and grace became a part, a, like a value um, that people strived for. And, and it's only through the Christian worldview that, that those things kind of exist. So... So there's that, the beauty of, of, of the Imago Dei and, and all those things and the philosophical arguments for, you know, a, a divine cause or, or the evidence for the resurrection. Those, those are all great. So true, good, beautiful. And then livable is, is the other thing, is that from an atheist perspective or even just broadly secular, maybe agnostic, where there's no way to ground morality, um, everything becomes relative, but that creates major problems for how you view the world because nobody actually lives that way. So there isn't any such thing as right or wrong or good or bad. Um, Dawkins has a famous quote outright saying that. And so then, in fact, I, I inter- interacted with somebody the other day who's new agey um and she um her claim was that effectively you know don't worry about the things you do wrong because god doesn't judge you and my challenge to her was does that apply to everyone in history and she was effectively saying yes and i said okay so what about hitler classic and yeah, always go to Hitler. Um, but the question is, then, does God really love Hitler's victims if he's not willing to judge? Because, of course, this gal does not believe that. You know, She wants Hitler judged, so she wants at least one person judged. But it, that philosophy is not livable. You can't, you can't live that way. So, but in Christianity, we have a great... It really describes the way the world is. Humans are very flawed, and there's an answer for that in Christianity. There is this sense that there's a purpose, and we're going somewhere. 
Well, there's an answer for that in Christianity. And we think there ought to be some sort of redemption. We love redemption stories. We have a great answer for that. Yeah, I'm currently teaching through Tim Keller's book, Forgive, and he regularly says forgiveness was just absent throughout history until Jesus came on the scene, and now Jesus gave us the resources we need to have a livable way of being that can grant forgiveness and still pursue justice at the same time. Yeah. And you don't have that until Jesus. So that livable piece, I think, makes a lot of sense. Harvard has a project called the the Human Flourishing Project. And I don't know if this guy's a Christian or not, but it seems like the, the main guy there is a guy named uh, Tyler Vander Lee. And he has effectively done research that shows that forgiveness is literally the, the mental health wonder drug. Hmm. And that if everybody is quick to forgive, the, the people that are most mentally healthy are quickest to forgive people. And so they're at Harvard trying to almost sort of make that into a pill, you know, where they have programs to teach people how to forgive quickly. And it's like, well, we already have that, you know? Yeah, yeah. and of course they don't go quite far enough because then you want to press people on the selfishness of forgiveness. You know, there's got to be something more. Yeah, you have to address your sin and and do some examination. Yeah. Yep, but I think many people, Keller and others, will just regularly say, if you are evaluating the principles you actually live by, and you find you're borrowing from Christianity to make it livable, yeah, why not give Christianity a chance? Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the Blaise Pascal question, is like, if Christianity is even possible, you should try it, because what if it's, what if it's true, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate a recent book by a guy named Christopher Watkin called Biblical Critical Theory, and he's just trying to bring the basic thrust of Augustine's City of God into the contemporary world. And he starts out just by saying, look, I'm not going to defend Christianity, but I want to show you how good it can be. Yeah, And I want to leave you hoping, wishing that it were true, even if you don't currently believe it, by exposing you to the biblical story and how it makes sense of life in the world. And I think that kind of approach that takes seriously the questions and concerns of philosophers and the average person, Mm -hmm. um, while at the same time showing them the goodness and beauty, truth, and livability of the biblical story is a really convincing way to engage in apologetics. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I want to talk a little bit then about um, the the shift from the angry new atheists, we might say, <laughs> yeah. to the more um, friendly atheists or agnostics, people who might even say that Christianity is good, but I'm not going to accept it personally. Um, as we're in a world where we probably encounter both kinds of people, what are some of the most important spiritual disciplines or Christian virtues or practices that you would commend for the members at our church to be able to engage in the world in a winsome and convictional way? So I think, I think you have to 
meet non-Christians and engage them in discussion. I just don't think there's a, a substitute. You have to do it to learn how to do it. Okay, so you're a dad with kids. Yep. Suburban life, basically. Yeah. Um, you obviously interact with non-Christians in your job, mm-hmm. like a, a lot of other people. Um, but maybe beyond just your coworkers, tell us how you and your family get connected to non-Christians um, outside of a formal ministry through Rashiocracy, because I think I think some people will hear that and say, "Oh yeah, absolutely." As soon you know, if if mm-hmm. I happen to ever see one, I'll talk to them. <laughs> um, but you face an even yeah. bigger challenge because you homeschool your children. Yeah. So how? What are what on this first piece of yeah. engaging non Christians? What's your advice to the average church member? Put put down your phone when you're in public, um, and. So I'm just as guilty as everybody else of having earbuds in when I'm out and about. <clears throat> but I want to make sure that those are out when I'm going to have interactions with people. Because um, we're not, it's rare that you're going to get somebody's ear for 30 minutes mm-hmm. anywhere. But you might get five minutes out and about at Costco or the mall or whatever. And it's usually people in the service sector or maybe you're in line at Starbucks or something, strike up a conversation. People like to talk about themselves, so ask them questions about themselves. Just like I was describing earlier, Jerry Root's methodology of just getting to private information so then you can let the, you know find out more about that person. And then I would say, second thing is, don't be concerned about getting the whole gospel out in one shot. It, mm-hmm. I've, it, it happens, but it, boy, I don't even know what percentage of interactions I have where I actually share the whole gospel. I might get to open up a conversation with somebody. Like um, last time I got my hair cut, I got maybe three minutes where the lady cutting my hair was interested in having a spiritual conversation, but then it, it kind of closed down and it didn't go any further. But in that three minutes, I got to at least open up the idea that, you know, church is a good thing for kids. That was, that was where I was going with it. And she was interested in that for a little bit. Now I didn't get the chance to say you're a sinner and you need a savior, but um, I put a rock in her shoe or a pebble in her shoe. And so maybe that will, you know, God's working beyond you. So if he, there are other people, he will send her way, you know? So I'd say, take the pressure off of getting the whole gospel out in one, one pass, but have conversations with people. That's where I've learned the most because I've, I've learned, wow, there's, I've, I can't even tell you how the amount of times I've had a conversation. I'm like, I can't believe that's an objection to Christianity that somebody would hold. That is so weird. But now I know there's people that believe whatever that weird thing is. Yeah. Okay. So I, I like the emphasis on engaging with non-Christians. Yeah. But I have a little bit of a pushback that I'd like to hear your response to. Okay. And I won't say if I agree with the pushback or not. Yeah. But I think it's worth considering. Okay. Um, it seems that sometimes when Christians are sensing that they're on a mission to engage with Mm non-Christians, 
that every person they come into contact with, they come into contact with them with an agenda for them and an aim to get them to hear something and feign curiosity or relate to the person as if they have nothing to learn from that person. They're just an agenda item. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Does that happen? And are there ways to avoid turning other people into an agenda item for us to try to control? Um, even as we believe we have something really important that we can share with them. Yeah. Yeah. That totally happens. And, um, there are one, one way I've seen it and I, there's a, I've, I know people that this is a methodology that they, that they really believe that I need to get the gospel out every time they're now their intentions are good because they have real concern for that person that they're not saved. However, I think anytime you, that you're engaged in evangelism, which is great. And I don't want to criticize, um, somebody's zeal for evangelism, uh, because most people aren't doing evangelism. So, um, but anytime that getting them to faith getting them to faith becomes this end goal rather than the person being the end goal. You sort of like got the cart in front of the horse. And then, and then I guess I haven't seen it work yet where, where the person that's being evangelized feels good about that interaction, you know? And so I I think there's a, there's this book that, um, we're required to read in seminary called I beg to differ. And, uh, it's, it's by a professor out of, uh, Biola university. And it, it's big. It's really, really big on intellectual hospitality. So you, I've said that a bunch of times and that, all that means is that I'm curious about that person. I want to know what they think, why they think it. And like I said, most of the conversations you're not going to get super long time with that person so you're only going to get a a few facts out of them but the the co-workers that you work with that aren't christians you you have much more time with to invest and so now you you can play a long game of just getting to know them what they think all those things and just appreciate them as somebody that god made and is images him in some way and is probably interesting and has interesting experiences that you can learn from and or just hear and that i think takes the pressure off if you just think about it that way i i don't like the methodology though i know it works sometimes that you just go out and bang 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 right it i never walk away or i never see that happen where i'm like i think that was I think that made the name of Jesus known and revered. I I think more often than not, it's just kind of comes off as pushy. Yeah, I I tend to agree with that. And I would not want to discourage anyone from sharing the gospel yeah. because I think you're right. It's not probably happening as often as it could or or should be. Yeah. Um, but I think I would want to call people to begin with a genuine love for that yeah. person and a willingness to continue to love them even if they ask you not to talk 
to them about the gospel? Yeah. Would you keep relating to them or would that be the end of your yeah. conversation? And and I think part of why we share the gospel, we in the back of our mind is, yeah, we love them, but also God wants us to share the gospel. But why does God want us to share the gospel? Because God loves that person. Yeah, right. And so if we confront it with, I want to be genuinely concerned about this person and take genuine interest in them mm-hmm. and look at them as a person, not a subject for my evangelization, yeah. then maybe our love will penetrate the weirdness of the proselytization that sometimes happens yeah. in Christianity. L- Lewis has this great line. I, I, I don't have it memorized, so I'll probably butcher it, but it's in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. And at the end of it, he's talking about how your neighbor, if you were to see them in glory, is the most, um, I forget how he puts it, but this is something like it's an uh, object. If you were to see them in glory, you would have the urge to worship them. Mm. And that we don't, his implication is that we don't think of our neighbors in that sense, that this is a person that is either going to be glorified and, and spend eternity with Christ and you or not. Mm. And that we should relate to them from an eternal perspective and not just a transactional perspective. Yeah. 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 I like that distinction. Relational, not transactional. Yeah. And the gospel is never transactionally communicated. And I I think, again, we could just look at Jesus and his declaring of the gospel of the kingdom, where he's not shy about it, but you also get the sense that he deeply cares for even those who reject him. Yeah. Um, So, okay, good. That's really helpful. So we should engage with non-Christians. You gave us some good ideas. Pop out the headphones, put down the phone. And I think we could add to just be genuinely curious about Mm -hmm. people. Um, what what else, what other practices would you really commend uh, to become the kind of people who represent Jesus well and who defend the faith appropriately? Yeah, I think um, reading. <laughs> um, podcasts are great. I listen to lots of them. Um, and, and all that's good. But I actually think the practice of reading good apologetics, whether that's, whether that's literature because that comes across, that's a form of cultural apologetics. Like um, Tolkien's books are a form of apologetics. He's in some way relaying biblical truths through his world building. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned Tim Keller. I mean, what a gift he has been or was to the Christian community. And his work is still so relevant and to sit and read through one of his books, uh, the reason for God would, if you just read that book, you would be so much, you would be so well equipped compared to the average Christian walking around on the street and ready for evangelistic encounters or, or just, I'll be honest. It part of the fun of apologetics is having more fun, having conversations that are more interesting. So. There's a personal benefit just on your own, like, household, like the kind of conversations you have. But, yeah, I would say reading. Um, it, honestly, we're living in the golden age of apologetics right now. It, there's books every month 
that would, you know, 20 years ago have been a classic of some sort. But now it's just another great book. Where where should people go if to start if they're thinking, I've never read an apologetics book in my yeah. life? Is there one that you would say, this would be a good foot in the door to kind of pique your interest? Yeah, I think Keller's The Reason for God, um, Lewis's Mere Christianity, which which is like one of the top books of the 20th century by secular um, organizations. Um, the, my daughters have both read uh, The Case for Christ, okay. my older ones, and it's pretty good. Um, and... And it'll strengthen your faith. I think most people are so unaware of the amount. There is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. More people wrote about Jesus Christ than the emperors, Roman empires of his day. So there's more evidence that he lived and died and rose from the dead than there is that Julius Caesar lived at all. So, um, yeah, so those are, you know, just a few of the the kind of staples. There's also one, and I would recommend this at that folks have this one on their uh, bookshelf is there's an old book called uh, evidence that demands a verdict. And if it comes, it'll surprise you because of how big it is. And I'm not suggesting that you read through it, but have it as an encyclopedia. Um, Because sometimes, you know, we doubt things um, or we hear a question that we're not quite sure of the answer to that book will pretty much handle 80% or better of those things. Yeah, that's great. I I want to end our conversation by turning the focus from relating to non-Christians to talking about Christians who doubt. Um, I think sometimes we might overlook the fact that there are faithful Christians in a church who are experiencing different forms of doubt for various reasons, and it isn't always popular to talk about it. And I, I want the members at Resurrection Church to know um, that's not the unforgivable sin. Yeah. In fact, we see the disciples regularly doubting and even praying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah. Uh, so doubt is not necessarily antithetical to mm-hmm. Christian faithfulness. So do you have a few words for people who may be experiencing doubt and then maybe some encouragement for those who feel really strong in the faith as they relate to those who doubt who are part of our congregation. Yeah. Um, Everybody doubts. When I went through seminary, I, my class on philosophy of history and the resurrection uh, started with a book my professor wrote from a Muslim perspective, and he made the case against the resurrection from a Muslim perspective. And it was so powerful, I started having doubts to the point where I'm like praying fervently that I will not lose my faith. And that only lasted for like a week, but it was, it felt like a very intense week for me that that was the first time I'd ever had doubts before. And I just didn't realize they would come. But the more Um, The farther I went into the program, the more I realized everybody struggles with these, especially when it comes to pain and suffering. You know, those are things that are common for every human. And we all go through seasons where it's, I mean, the Psalms are full of them. And um, so, yeah, I would say, number one, you're not alone. Everybody um, 
struggles with those doubts. Now, the, the one thing I would say, though, is make sure that you're communicating with people about that. So it can be a bit scary to, to throw those out on the table, but better to go through it with somebody than to suffer through it alone. We're, we're, you know, we're to bear each other's burdens, and that's a part of it. And then doubt your doubts. So it's really popular to deconstruct right now. Um, but, but your doubts, you came to faith for good reasons. And those might have been experiential. Your conversion process may have been experiential. It may have been a, a logical process over time. Maybe you didn't even remember it because you came to faith as a seven-year-old. Um, but, but whatever those reasons were, you have a catalog of experience with Christ and his people. And so as you're going through doubts, recall those and make sure that you scrutinize that doubt with the level that you ought to based on those experiences. Yeah, I appreciate that point. I think uh, for certain things, we probably should be deconstructing some false beliefs that we've held or deconstructing some of the arrogance with which we've held the beliefs. Um, but deconstruction doesn't need to lead to deconversion. Um, and as we reflect on why we came to faith to begin with, or all of the things that we've already talked about, um, I think we'll start to see that God meets us in the doubts and that, um, as Paul quotes or writes himself, that even when we're faithless, God shows himself faithful yeah. So there's that call to return to the faithfulness of yeah. God, even in the midst of doubt. Yeah, we're going through um, Psalm 119 at church on Wednesday nights, and the psalmist in that psalm repeatedly asks God to give him knowledge, give him love. Once he has, he's confident that if God gives him love, God will give him the knowledge of his ways. and. I think that's so encouraging for us because it's, it's a promise that God makes to us that if we ask, he will, he will give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you for taking time to talk with us. It's been fun getting to know you, and I know you're early on in starting this apologetics ministry, but um, we trust that God will use it to strengthen the faith of Christians and um, to aid them in showing all that is good and true and beautiful and livable, and ultimately showing them how that is in Jesus. And uh, blessings on you as you pursue that ministry. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's such a privilege to, to be a part of a faith community. It just, you know, our, our churches have some common DNA and, and background. It's just been a joy for my family to to come here to this church and, and spend a little bit of time with you guys here in, the, in there. And so uh, it's been fun to get to know you and I'm excited for the way God is using you guys here. Thanks. Yeah.